Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have so many stories for you tonight. We are starting the show with a very important discussion about the state of hospitals at the moment in the Omicron wave. Is Boris Johnson underplaying the crisis that we're, we're currently in? We'll also be talking about Tony Blair, Keir Starmer, a bust up over drugs at the top of the Labour Party, Emma Watson, and a really good news story about the Colston Four. Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, one criteria has stood out above all others as the motivation for government action, preventing the overwhelming of the NHS. It was the risk of collapsing Britain's health service which led to the first coronavirus lockdown in March 2020, and now it's the weakened association between infections and hospitalizations which has led the government to tolerate over 200,000 cases of Omicron a day. That's without introducing further restrictions. So how are Britain's hospitals coping in this wave? Well, as we explained on Monday, current data provides both cause for reassurance and cause for alarm. To start on the alarming front, COVID admissions nationwide have already reached 2,000 people a day, far higher than the Delta wave. What's worse, in some parts of the country, hospitalizations from Omicron look set to exceed the peaks reached in every prior wave. So this is data from the northwest of England. The seven-day average of daily admissions peaked at 412 in the first wave, of coronavirus, you can see on the far left there, in the last winter wave, so that was the worst one, it reached 440. But in this Omicron wave, the seven-day average is already 343 and still rising. So we could exceed those awful scenes we saw last January, in terms of numbers, at least. On the reassuring side, fewer of these patients are requiring care in ICU. So this graph, again, shows data from the northwest of England, and you can see that COVID patients on mechanical ventilation are still pretty flat. Enormous rise in admissions, but that's not translating into ICU. That is, of course, good news, but it doesn't mean hospitals aren't struggling. Due to Omicron-induced staff absences, a backlog of cancelled non-emergency surgery from the past two years and a decade of underfunding, hospitals are having to reduce the care they can provide. Sean Linton from the Sunday Times has reported that Non-urgent operations have been delayed at 17 hospitals across Greater Manchester as the region battles 15% staff absences and one in five patients having COVID in some hospitals. You can see this sounds like an incredibly difficult situation. There are also multiple NHS trusts across the country that have declared critical incidents. That means they can't guarantee all patients will have their usual standard of care. So those places include, at this point, Dorset, Plymouth, Blackpool, Gloucester and Lincolnshire. I'm sure more will be added to that list in the coming days. And even where critical incidents haven't been declared, so for example in London, healthcare staff have questioned why, if hospitals aren't overwhelmed, makeshift wards need to be set up in car parks. Dr Rachel Clark tweeted today, just been sent this, it's the London Mini Nightingale Note the foundations, which if you sort of look at the bottom there, you can see are made of wooden pallets. And she says, but no, the NHS is not overwhelmed currently, not remotely, Boris Johnson. 
Of course, overwhelmed is a loose term. We could set the bar very high and say the NHS is only overwhelmed when children go untreated after car crashes, or we could set it lower and say that the condition is met, so the, the NHS is only overwhelmed every time care drops below the standards we'd expect and when staff are under unsustainable pressure. At Tuesday's Downing Street press conference, Boris Johnson was asked to clarify what his government would use as their criteria for the NHS being overwhelmed. The NHS is under huge pressure. I, I won't provide a, a definition of what uh, being overwhelmed uh, would, would constitute because I think that different trusts in different places uh, at different moments uh, will feel at least temporarily uh, overwhelmed. And anybody who, you know, in uh, hospitals at the moment uh, are, are sending out signals, as you know, Rowena, saying uh, that they, they, they're feeling uh, the pressure hugely. And uh, I understand that and I, and I, and I thank them for uh, the work that they're, they're doing. It's absolutely fantastic. There will be a difficult period for our wonderful NHS for the next few weeks because of Omicron. I just think that we have to get through it as best as we possibly can. We will give the NHS all the support uh, that we can. But in the meantime, the thing we've got to do uh, as, as responsible members of the public is follow the, uh, the guidance, uh, try to stop transmission as much as we can and uh, get boosted. So Boris Johnson thinks the booster campaign will get us through Omicron and elsewhere in the speech, he said England could ride out this wave. That's without further measures. But what's the view on the front line? Earlier today, I spoke to Dave Carr, a critical care nurse at a London hospital. Pressure is constant. It's been constant now for the last two years. You've got to bear in mind that before the pandemic, we were running at hot all the time, especially in winter. Pandemic one comes along and hits us really hard takes its toll on staff, takes its toll on, on material inside the hospital. Pandemic two is materially worse, the second wave, materially worse than the first. No time for a break for NHS staff. We have to try and recover NHS core services. So we're working flat out still with a, a big sump of COVID patients inside the hospital. And since the summer onwards, we've been dealing with uh, a steady amount of COVID, increasing amount of staff stress, um, and sickness, a huge amount of staff leaving the NHS, leaving critical care, leaving the wards because they just can't take it anymore. And now we're hit with this Omicron. You know, if you don't vaccinate the world, then you end up with variants and we've ended up with Omicron and it has hit us so hard. So our staff sickness is through the roof, double, triple what it has been in the past. Our turnover of staff is much higher than it's been in, in, in the past. We have now more COVID patients than we've had since this time last year in the hospitals. You know, thankfully at the moment, not as many requiring critical care. But the state of our wards is dangerous. And I think you've got to, we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to ask ourselves, are we overwhelmed? Yes, we are overwhelmed, unless you're prepared to tolerate cancellation of operations, cancellation of cancer. Um, appointments, cancellation of routine surgery, cancellation of life-saving surgery, waiting 15 hours for an ambulance, a real um, you know, sense that if people are injured at the moment and need um, A&E, uh, urgent A&E, is that ambulance going to get there in time? If you're prepared to accept that we are not running an NHS as you know it and as I know it, then we're not overwhelmed. Failing that, as I look at it, as we see it in the NHS, 
the NHS is, is, is overwhelmed now, absolutely overwhelmed. And you're seeing that um, played out with critical incidents occurring all across the NHS where we have it. I'm, I'm getting reports that we have got wards in hospitals in London where there are no qualified staff working on that ward or one qualified staff where whole teams of nurses are ringing in sick with COVID because of the amount that this, this virus has, has been allowed to rip. In, in the country. So are we overwhelmed? I think we're overwhelmed. Um, but you've really got to ask what kind of service that you want. If you want a second rate service that cannot provide its core services, then let's carry on until Omicron's burnt its way through the population. In this period, core services are, are being undermined because of the extent of the Omicron surge in, in London right now. You're, you're, you're a London critical care nurse. I suppose the argument would be that if this surge, if this wave passes quite quickly, then so long as it doesn't collapse to the extent that there are people dying in beds, then we can, in the words of, of Boris Johnson, ride it out. H how would you respond to that? If, if for the, the two months, say, of an Omicron surge, we should be able to accept a lower service than we would usually um, in the NHS. Do you think that would be a reasonable argument to make? Well, I think it's an argument that Boris Johnson can make because he doesn't have to rely on the NHS. And when you talk about riding it out, People are dying now because they can't get the surgeries they require. People are dying in hospital beds because they can't get the operations because there aren't the staff. You know, our, our beds have been cut. Our ability to deliver core services have been compromised by the amount of um, changes to our practice because of Omicron. So, you know, the question, can we ride this out? At what cost? At what cost do you want to ride this out? To your mum, to your dad? To your, to your loved ones, that's the cost we're paying for his hubris. That's the cost we're paying at the moment. So people are dying now. People aren't getting the care they require now. People aren't getting their appointments now. The service is overwhelmed. Look at the amount of critical incidents that have been declared across the UK, not just in London. It's, it's, we are paying the price of these people's incompetence, their mediocrity, to put it at, at best. But we are already paying a price. And when we've ridden this out, you know, when it's over and done with and, and the cost is counted, not just in COVID dead, but the collateral damage, and that's what they're calling it, collateral damage, the people that couldn't get their operations, that couldn't get their treatment in time, that they, the health workers' lives that have been wrecked, the well-being, the mental scarring, what kind of a health service do we want? What kind of a society do we want to live in when these are the choices that are being offered us? Let's ride it out. At what cost are we riding this out? What's the sense among your colleagues of, of what you would like the government to do at this point? Are you saying that there's so much stre stress in hospitals that we need something akin to a lockdown? Do you want more restrictions or is the issue something else? What, what would be your, I suppose, your short term and your medium term demands? Michael, it's, it's really difficult at the moment because this is, it's been a slow train coming and it's accelerated with COVID. So the NHS, as I, the NHS I trained in is not the same NHS as that I'm working in now. People are desperately trying to hold this together, desperately trying to give the best level of care to patients that they can. Would another lockdown help? It may slow some of the acceleration of COVID into our, into our hospitals, but we have to look at this, this in the round. We have got a shattered workforce. We've got 50,000 vacancies of nurses in the UK, in, in England alone. Um, we have got high turnover rates. We've got massive levels of sickness due to COVID, but also due to stress because people just can't take it anymore. An RCN survey shows that a full 50% of nursing staff want to leave the NHS because they just cannot handle the, the way we've been treated. What would, what would 
stave this off. I think there has to be a recognition by the media, by yourselves on the left in the media, by the mainstream media, by the politicians, that this is a, a catastrophe. And it's not coming. It's here. It's with us. What would help? Uh, recognition. A, a recognition from every strata of the media and of uh, you know of the movement of, from the Labour Party from the trade union movements you know they need to get off their backsides and they need to start saying our people are dying and our health workers are being crushed by the weight of the mess that we faced ourselves that we found ourselves in at the moment it is that bad inside the NHS at the moment it is that bad. That was Dave Carr, a critical care nurse, speaking to me earlier today. I'm going to go to a comment. Julie Batterson with uh, Fiber says, what happened to the R rate? Last year, we would have been in lockdown. Now, our so-called prime minister says, no problem, WTF. Um, I'm not sure what they think the R rate is at the moment. In London, it might be one now because they think cases might have peaked. But in any case, it's an interesting question. I mean, the reason the government talk less about the R rate now than they did before is because there no longer is really much of an attempt to suppress Omicron because they are, well, in, in Boris Johnson's words, they want to ride it out. I mean, as we've talked about on the show, I don't necessarily think the RA is as important now as it was back then, because we've got the vaccines and we are expecting lots of people to get Omicron. And, you know, in terms of what Dave said there, which is all incredibly important, we absolutely do need to give so much recognition to the people who are on the front line in the NHS and are doing stuff that is not normal. It is not normal to ask people to do this in their jobs, but we have asked them to do this for two years now. And actually, as as Dave Carr said, not just for two years, because it has been the case that every winter the NHS has, has gone into this sort of critical phase where even though any old flu season is predictable, you've got people being asked to do extra shifts, being asked to change shifts, you've got people being treated in corridors, all because our government didn't bother to invest properly in the NHS. So, I mean, I, I think the takeaway from this situation is is pretty clear, which is that it's not normal what we are asking of people working in this service. We need to massively invest in the NHS so that this kind of thing never happens again. Tony Blair is now Sir Tony Blair. The former Prime Minister was awarded a knighthood in the New Year's honours. He is now a member of the Order of the Garter, which is an appointment made personally by the Queen. Not everyone is impressed. Over 700,000 people have already signed a change.org petition to have the title stripped from Blair, and the sentiment expressed by that petition is not a minority opinion. It's pretty widespread. So in a recent YouGov survey, it was found that 63% of those polled either disapproved or strongly disapproved of Blair receiving a knighthood, whereas only 14% either approved or strongly approved of the move. This should, of course, not come as a surprise. Back in 2003, Britain saw the largest political demonstration in UK history when an estimated 2 million people turned out to protest the UK going to war in Iraq. That demonstration came six months after Tony Blair made this infamous claim to MPs. The dossier we publish gives the answer. The reason is because his chemical, biological and nuclear weapons programme is not an historic leftover from 1998. The inspectors aren't needed to clean up the old remains. His weapons of mass destruction program is active, detailed, and growing. The policy of containment is not working 
The weapons of mass destruction program is not shut down. It is up and running now. This dossier is based on the work of the British Joint Intelligence Committee. For over 60 years, beginning just prior to World War II, the JIC has provided intelligence assessments to British Prime Ministers. Normally, its work obviously is secret. Unusually, because it is important we explain our concerns over Saddam to the British people, we have decided to disclose their assessments. I am aware, of course, that people are going to have to take elements of this on the good faith of our intelligence services. But this is what they are telling me, the British Prime Minister, and my senior colleagues. The intelligence picture they paint is one accumulated over the last four years. It is extensive, detailed, and authoritative. It concludes that Iraq has chemical and biological weapons, that Saddam has continued to produce them, that he has existing and active military plans for the use of chemical and biological weapons, which could be activated within 45 minutes, including against his own Shia population, and that he is actively trying to acquire nuclear weapons capability. Those claims turned out to be bullshit. In a landmark inquiry in 2016, Lord Chilcott was damning of the arguments Tony Blair used to justify war. He gave this assessment to the BBC. In the most simple terms, do you believe that Tony Blair was as straight with you and the public as he ought to have been? Can I slightly re reword that to say, I think any prime minister taking a country into war has got to be straight with the nation and carry it so far as possible with him or her. I don't believe that was the case in the Iraq instance. That war would directly cause the deaths of up to a million Iraqis. Interestingly, amongst those campaigning to have Blair's knighthood revoked is the Daily Mail. According to the story, Jeff Hoon, Defence Secretary at the time of the Iraq War, was instructed by Jonathan Powell, Blair's then Chief of Staff, to burn a legal memo in the weeks before Britain went to war. That memo apparently contained the advice of the then Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith. In that advice, he said the war could be illegal. Lord Goldsmith, in the days before the war, changed the advice. Philippe Sands is the human rights lawyer who first revealed the existence of Goldsmith's initial advice. He said, When Lord Goldsmith wrote the legal advice warning that war in Iraq could be illegal, he can hardly have expected that those who received a copy would be told to burn after reading. Yet Mr. Hoon says that this is what he was told, offering further confirmation of what has long been known. Ministers, Parliament and the public were misled by Mr. Blair into supporting a war that was seen by many as unlawful and a crime. In modern Britain, it seems such a manifest act of wrongdoing does not preclude the offering of a high-level gong. So, we have knighted a man who is alleged to have required legal advice to be destroyed before taking Britain into an illegal war. It's no wonder 63% of the public want that honour stripped. There are some influential people in the 13% who do want him to keep it, though. One is, of course, the Queen. Another is Keir Starmer. 
I think Tony Blair deserves the honour. He he won three elections. He was a very successful prime minister. I haven't got time this morning to list all of his many achievements, which I think vastly improved our country, you know, whether that's minimum wage, sure start for young families. But the one I would pick out in particular is the work he did in Northern Ireland and the peace process and the huge change that has made. I, I worked for myself in Northern Ireland for six years with the police service over there. Um, and I saw for myself the profound impact it had on on peace on both communities in Northern Ireland. So I don't think it's thorny at all. Okay. I think he deserves the honour. Obviously, thorny, I respect because, the fact that people yeah. have different views. Keir Starmer tends to follow public opinion. On this issue, he's willing to take a stand. I guess the sirs like to stick together. Dahlia Blair's knighthood, is it deserved, undeserved, or who cares? Blair is a very interesting figure because to this day, he, he really does unite sort of most of the, the political spectrum of British people in their disdain for him. You know, I always feel quite proud when I see those statistics of how much people will basically not let Blair's atrocities in Iraq go unremembered. It feels like one of the few acceptable forms of international solidarity that we're still allowed these days. And the only group of people that are in any way interested in rehabilitating Blair's reputation is the kind of self-appointed manufactured centre, which basically consists of a few dozen people. And it goes to show you that those who relentlessly in the media and in the political sphere self-define as moderate or centrist, often it's just a key word for establishment. Um, because, And this is perfectly an example of this because much of the so-called centrists are in favour of this knighthood, but much of the actual British public aren't. And, and let's not forget, you know, that's what the purpose of a knighthood kind of is. We tend to get outraged when abominable people get knighted, but knighthoods aren't badges of moral clarity. They are, it's literally a way of the elite marking themselves and the sort of occasional outsider uh, with a reward for allegiance, basically. And so Blair very much fits within that rubric. But I think it's, it's absolutely right that every time Blair's name is mentioned, we bring up the one million Iraqis who were needlessly killed by that war because no number of sure start centers or whatever else can overshadow the atrocity that took place at every stage of that war, the, the lies and the attacks on democracy that took place in the lead up to the war, the violence that took place during the war, and also the instability and harm that continues to take place in the region as a knock-on effect of that, that war. You know, we're not just talking about children who are still being born with congenital health issues as a result of toxic chemicals that were used in the Iraq war. But we're also talking about the ongoing political crisis that the region is experiencing. You know, the Middle East is often talked about as if it's this kind of pathologically unstable or kind of conflict ridden part of the world. But that's not the reality, that doesn't make any sense. It is a region that has been made unstable. And the, the war in Iraq, the 2003 war in Iraq, was a huge part of the perpetuating of those conditions. You know, the rise of ISIS can be connected to the political fallout that took place as a result of, of the Iraq war. And 
no amount of domestic policy successes make that okay. But I think it's also important to talk about those so-called domestic policy successes, you know, the, the kinds of successes that we're told needs to be taken into account when we talk about Tony Blair for, for balance. Many of those so-called successes were not even successful in any kind of sustainable way. Like when was the last time you actually saw a sure start center? Many of these successes were overturned very shortly after Blair's tenure because the broader right-wing shift that took place in Britain, the destruction of the left, took place in Britain as a result of Blairism. The indulging, for example, of stereotypes around benefit scroungers, around bogus asylum seekers, this kind of cultural and political con these kind of cultural and political trends within Blairism created the context for the total destruction of the welfare state that we saw during austerity. So even those sort of marginal wins, those kind of crumbs that we got during the Blair years, the broader political shift that took place, political economic shift that took place under Blairism meant that they were very, very easily turned back when the Conservatives um, came into to power. So given that, whilst Blair won multiple elections, I would argue that he didn't produce domestically and obviously certainly not internationally the kinds of long-term successes that we would expect from a three-term Labour government. So basically, he's unpopular, unsuccessful and unscrupulous. So I would say that sounds about right for a night, to be quite honest. He is actually perfectly suited for the role. To be chosen by the Queen as actually someone who, who has stood up for the British Empire. I mean, he increased Britain's influence around the world just in an incredibly nefarious way, making us responsible for, well, not just the deaths that were directly caused by Iraq, but as you said earlier, the, the instability that was caused in the Middle East. And also, I think, you know, what you say, he left the gains that were made incredibly vulnerable because he hadn't empowered the working class. He hadn't fought against the demonization of people on benefits and in fact had actually fed it and very significantly never did anything to take on the power of Rupert Murdoch. So Rupert Murdoch still remained a huge power in British politics, which meant the moment the wind changed, we were all screwed. Anyway, congratulations, Tony Blair on your knighthood. I hope you're happy with yourself, you bastard. Next story is also on Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer has a history of bland, vague slogans. During the 2019 leadership contest, his team sent every party member a poster of his face, which said, integrity, authority, unity. Clearly a fan of the vague triplet at Labour's 2021 conference, Keir Starmer unveiled this powerful message. Stronger, future, together. And in case that slogan didn't feed your lust for abstract nouns, four more were added. So along with stronger future together, we got work, care, equality, and security. So you got seven there. Um, you were able to take your pick. Now, you may be relieved to find that when it comes to vague lists of values, Labour has returned to the rule of free simplicity rules. This week, in a set piece speech, Keir Starmer unveiled a new slogan. Drumroll, please. Security, prosperity, respect. It is inspiring stuff. They are, of course, free, very good things. I'd like to live in security. I'd like to be prosperous and I like to be treated with respect. 
A good slogan, though, isn't just about listing nice things. It's also got to be memorable. And on that front, the slogan failed its first test. This was the moment in the Q&A session after the speech where Starmer had a, a little memory error. Firstly, I'm very proud to stand in front of the um, flag. I've done it many times before, including when I was director of public prosecutions representing our country 10 years ago. Um, so I've always been very proud to do so. But it's not just the, the flag that drives our patriotism. As I said in, in the speech, it's really the values that lie behind that, the values I've outlined um, today of security, of prosperity, um, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and um, respect. Security, prosperity, and... Um, uh, oh. Ooh. Respect, respect, security, prosperity, respect. Incredible. I feel like instead of announcing, ever announcing, like policies or visions or even just positions, Kistama just comes out like every three months and announces a slogan. And, you know, I'm not saying that I solely know what the perfect strategy for Labour should be right now. But I know that this kind of sloganeering politics is incredibly grating and ineffective. Uh, people were, were and continue to be absolutely saturated in it, uh, particularly during the Blair years. And it's rightly come to feel synonymous with inauthenticity and with people who want to be in power, not because they're driven by a particular vision, but because they just want to be in power for power's sake. That's what it stinks of. And it's a harking back to that kind of politics that a small group of Westminster consultants think it worked for, for Blair. It's won Labour elections in the past, so we just need to keep doing it until it wins again. But this is a fundamentally different era. It's one in which this kind of sloganeering political comms gets completely eaten alive in social media. I also think that we have an electorate that is much, particularly the younger electorate, that is much more literate in terms of policy and in terms of the kinds of visions that they want to see. And also it kind of falls on ears that are very exhausted and falls on exhausted ears when it comes to what feels like focus group politics. And we are at the moment, you know, we are experiencing overlapping crises, you know, from, from health crises to climate crises to economic crises. And at the moment, we need concrete, achievable, but radical frameworks. And with people that we trust can prepare us, not just for the crises that we're in right now, but for the ones that are likely to come in the future. And churning out new slogans made up of three sort of abstractly good things every three months. It doesn't do that. If anything, it just makes people more suspicious of your motives. It makes them trust you less because they feel like you've been around in public life for quite a long time now. We feel like we see you on TV all the time, and yet we don't know what drives you. I think when we look at the previous leader of the Labour Party, the argument was often made that we had a sort of comprehensive a framework of policy change, very substantive policy sort of framework that was poorly messaged. I agree with that to an extent. I think that the reasons that Corbyn was defeated were much deeper than that, um, much deeper than just comms. But now we have both no framework, no substance, 
and also no comms, like or bad comms. So really, it's a non-starter. And I actually think that every time one of these, one every time he drops a new slogan, I actually think it backfires a bit because it just makes you look fake and it makes you look untrustworthy. Whereas, you know, if he just said nothing at all, then maybe we could just forget about how embarrassing this whole thing is. Every relaunch of a slogan is is actually just uh, an opportunity for Keir Starmer to get on TV in a suit. Because I, I, I think so much of the strategy is, look at me, I look like a prime minister. So he's just got a, I think the new slogans are for that purpose. I do have to say, security, prosperity, respect is better than stronger future together. I don't know how stronger future together got signed up because that <laughs> is completely meaningless. I can imagine, you know, security, it doesn't say anything. It's not a sentence. It's just a list of vague, nice things, but it's more attractive than stronger future together, which is completely, completely bizarre. We've got more Starmer coming up, and it's a bit more substantive, this one. There's a policy involved. Not a good one. A new row is brewing in the Labour Party, and this time it concerns drugs. On one side is London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who is set to trial a scheme which would effectively decriminalise possession of cannabis for young people in certain London boroughs. According to the plan, 18 to 24-year-olds caught in possession of cannabis in the boroughs of Lewisham, Bexley and Greenwich will not be arrested or prosecuted, but rather taken home and referred to counselling services. According to the mayor's spokesperson, the idea of the scheme, which is already used by other police forces across the country, would be to divert young people who are found with a small amount of cannabis away from the criminal justice system and instead provide help and support. This has been shown to reduce reoffending. On the other side of Labour's drug bust-up is the former Director of Public Prosecutions and party leader, Keir Starmer. In a speech this week, he promised a tough new approach to closing down drug dens, giving new powers for local police and local authorities. Then, in the question-and-answer session, he was asked if his stance on drugs put him at odds with Sadiq Khan. On um, the drugs legislation, I've said a number of times, and i say again, um, I'm not in favour of us changing the law um, or decriminalisation, um, and I'm very clear about that. Um, I haven't seen the detail of the proposals that you've reported on. Um, I, as I understand it, they're early measures, um, they're some sort of pilots. Um, obviously, um, we'll look at those, but I'm very clear that we're not in favour of changing the drugs laws, and um, that's why I said what I said in my speech. Yes, when it comes to drugs, Keir Starmer has been clear. Labour will be just as tough as the Tories who have declared their own war on middle-class drug use. Indeed, Downing Street responded to Khan's plans in a similar way to Starmer. A spokesperson said, We have absolutely no intention of decriminalising dangerous and harmful substances for recreational use. That's right on drugs policy. You couldn't fit a Rizla paper between the stances of Johnson and Starmer. So why is Starmer so uncompromising on drug policy? It's yet to be explained, but it does break with a slogan they've trotted out a lot over the past two years, that a Labour government would follow the science. Because when it comes to drug policy, the evidence is clear. Treating drug use as a public health issue instead of a criminal justice one is what works. We've talked about this at length on previous episodes, but to remind you, there is only one country in Europe where possession of all drugs, not just cannabis, have been decriminalised. It's Portugal. They made the bold move in 2001, and these were the results. 
as you can see here, deaths from substance abuse have fallen in Portugal over the past 15 years. In the UK, they have increased. They are now at least double the rate here than they are in Portugal. Naturally, criminalization, which leads to marginalization, has also dropped in Portugal. That's in contrast to the rest of the EU. So as you can see here, in 2000, over 40% of prisoners in Portugal had been sentenced for drug offences. That's more than halved since the policy change. Meanwhile, the proportion of prisoners sentenced for drug offences has increased in the rest of the EU. Dahlia, the evidence, the science, backs Khan. What is Keir Starmer playing at? What's driving the man? I think it's it's cowardice. It's the absolute fear of sticking his neck out in any way, shape or form. Uh, and I just want to, and you know, you've touched on this, but I just really want to emphasize here how far behind the UK is in this conversation. When compared to the US, to Europe, there is some level of, of decriminalization of personal possession of cannabis in not only in an increasing number of states in the US, but we have some form of it in Portugal, in Belgium, in Switzerland, Spain, the Netherlands, Malta, Luxembourg, Croatia, Italy, Austria, all these countries, we have some form of decriminalization of personal possession of cannabis. And this isn't even about decriminalizing all drugs, which, you know, has happened in some parts of the world, like Portugal, famously. It's about decriminalizing the personal possession of cannabis, a drug that we know is not really any more dangerous than alcohol. It's such an incremental position. Um, from a criminal justice perspective, from a public health perspective, all the evidence points to decriminalization. But there's this deep conservatism that we have in the UK establishment when it comes to drugs. And it means that we are still stuck in this very draconian and harmful mindset. But I think it's important to remember that this isn't reflected so much in public opinion. Six out of 10 Britons believe that criminalizing drugs doesn't work. So they're right to believe that because the criminalization of drugs is not about preventing drug use or even you know, promoting a healthier relationship with drugs, particularly drugs like, like marijuana. As we know, some of the most dysfunctional and systemic abuses of drugs takes place in the city square mile. The criminalization of drugs is about policing the movements and the lives and the communities of working class black and brown people. It's about justifying the harsher policing and surveillance of these communities. And unfortunately, that seems to be something that Keir Starmer is at least not particularly bothered by, not, you know, the assumption that he actually kind of backs it. And we can see that in his relentless support, bolstering policing, despite the impacts that we know that it has on these communities. And so it's within that framework of both cowardice and also lack of concern for the communities that are most impacted by the criminalization of drug possession. It's within that context that despite the public popularity and the overwhelming evidence that this kind of policy would relieve many marginalized communities from the systemic harms of aggressive policing. We see Starmer refusing to take leadership on this issue, even though Sadiq Khan kind of laid the groundwork for that to happen. And it tells me what I suspected, which is that working class black and brown communities 
is aren't really part of Starmer's constituency. And all I would say is good luck trying to win a national election as a Labour government without that constituency backing you. Um, it's not going to go well for you. I assume what he'd say in his defence, or if there are any aggressives left around his team, they'd say, well, we don't actually feel that strongly about drugs. We just don't want to have a debate about drugs because message discipline is all about sticking to your lines. Our lines are that there is one rule for us and one rule for them. Our lines are that the cost of living is increasing and our lines is that you know they've screwed over the NHS. So we don't want to get sidetracked into a debate about drugs. Or I think recently it was also about criminalization of sex. But all, the, all these sort of issues that Labour think we don't want to have that conversation. We don't want to have that debate. I think there's something to that. At the same time, though, he hasn't he hasn't left room for doubt, has he? It's not the case that he said, look, we'll have a review when we enter government, which is the kind of line I'd use on this. I wouldn't go into the next election arguing for decriminalization, but go in saying you're going to have a, a review which will be led by the science. Instead, he says, we do not want to change drug laws, which means that if they do enter government, they are ahead in the polls at the moment. I still, you know, that, that doesn't mean that we can say, oh, they will win the next general election. But if they do, it's going to be very difficult for them to have a more progressive drugs policy than we currently do have, because he has been quite categorical about this. We do not want to change drug laws. And clearly, the evidence suggests we probably should change drug laws. You know, what are you going to, you're going to save that for your second term? It is disappointing. Even though I can see, I, I, I'm not necessarily saying he should stand up and say decriminalize drugs now. I'd say Throw it into the long grass, but don't be as categorical as you are being, because that does mean that whichever party wins the next general election, we're going to have reactionary, hypocritical drug laws, which no one believes in for the next 10 years. I think it speaks to his conservatism, both in terms of his political conservatism, but also his strategic conservatism. You know, the fact that he shies away from having difficult conversations, I think that makes him unappealing, at least to me. But I think based on how so many of the population are routinely polled, it seems like the public kind of feel the same way. Uh, and yeah, I just think it's, it's, it seemed like a needless alienating of a key part of, of the Labour base, many of whom would, prob would probably agree with decriminalising private possession of marijuana. Well, as you say, the majority of the public do. So if the majority of the public do, then the majority of Labour voters are going to, because it's a position which is disproportionately held by progressives and people who are on the left. So you could get consensus on this. I can see why he doesn't want to have that argument. That's why I say throw it into long grass. So we're going to follow the science. We'll get some experts to look into it. And we'll go for whichever policy is best. Anything difficult, I think they should just do that. But no, he's, he goes above and beyond the 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 task of proving how reactionary he is. Trust me, trust me, I'm not remotely progressive. I'm going to take all of these reactionary positions, even though no one has demanded them of me, which is, yeah, disappointing, let's say. Emma Watson has found herself in the middle of a geopolitical storm this week. Earlier in the week, she posted this image on her Instagram. The sentence, solidarity is a verb, against a background in which a few Palestinian flags and free Palestine signs are visible. It was accompanied by this quote from feminist academic Sarah Ahmed. Solidarity does not assume that our struggles are the same struggles, or that our pain is the same pain, or that our hope is for the same future. Solidarity involves commitment and work, as well as the recognition that even if we do not have the same feelings, or the same lives, or the same bodies, we do live on common ground. 
So far, so innocuous and the kind of mild statement you might expect from a Hollywood star. Although, of course, welcome. But the post-anodyne, as it may seem, led to some pretty powerful people losing their minds. Danny Danon is former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. He tweeted the following. 10 points from Gryffindor for being an anti-Semite. Oh, God. What a terrible joke, as well as being reactionary. He wasn't alone. The current Israeli ambassador to the UN wrote, Fiction may work in Harry Potter, but it does not work in reality. If it did, the magic used in the wizarding world could eliminate the evils of Hamas, in brackets, which oppresses women and seeks the annihilation of Israel, and the PA, which supports terror. I would be in favor of that. Again, riffing off the Harry Potter theme. All this is proof that any expression of solidarity whatsoever will be declared anti-Semitic by Israeli officials. Dahlia, will these actions of these diplomats come shit posters backfire? Well, I think you you said it right. I don't think the aim of this is to convince anyone. Uh, I think it's to completely deflect against and drown out and actually stigmatize solidarity with Palestinian people. And, and in a way, it's kind of worked. You know, the conversation has been, is Emma Watson anti-Semitic? Or, you know, about sort of sassy clapbacks from Israeli officials rather than actually talking about why would Emma Watson be expressing solidarity with the Palestinian people? What's happening to the Palestinian people? Which is really what the coverage and fallout of this should be, from this should be about. And we're discussing whether or not caring about Palestinian life is, is anti-Semitic. And that constant twinning of anti-Semitism with caring about Palestinian life in public discourse is a way of constantly diverting the conversation from the latter and, and muddying the waters of the serious issue of the ab abuse of Palestinian human rights. And so now we've come to the position, we've ended up in the position, this was something that many in the Palestinian movement warned against, which is that the mere mentioning of Palestine, the mere representation of Palestine in public discourse is stigmatized and it's risky. And that's the point. It's to erase the existence discursively, geographically, culturally, and physically of the Palestinian people. And so in many ways, what they were trying to do is what they have done. But I think there's an argument to be made that they are showing themselves because now that simply the mention of Palestinian people, the use of a Palestinian flag, the expression of care for Palestinian people is being smeared and draws abuse from, from literal diplomats, it shows that the entire notion that the current Israeli state is interested in any way in a two-state solution or in coexistence is just absolutely farcical. How can they tolerate the existence of a Palestinian state or a, of a self-determined self Palestinian people when they cannot even tolerate the mere presence of a Palestinian flag on the social media account of an actress? So I think in a sense, yes, They've showed themselves, but I also think that the whole aim of this is to throw dust into our eyes every time the word Palestine or any Palestine in any way is referenced, and it's to eventually squash the presence and the, the existence of the Palestinian people in any meaningful way. Because historically, whilst they've always had the his, the military dominance, the economic dom dominance, the political dominance, 
the spiritual and the solidarity, the, the dominance of spirituality and, and solidarity has always been something that wasn't in the grasp of the Israeli state. And so I think that, you know, now by, by stigmatizing the public discussion in this way, uh, it's a way of making people too afraid to, to even mention the word Palestine um, in public. And that's, that's a really scary position that we're in. I agree with most of that. I agree with the, you know, creating fear. I think in terms of the diverting the conversation, it's potentially more subtle than that because it's not as if on this show we were going to talk about Palestine and we're going to talk about the Israeli oppression of, of Palestinians, but we chose it because there is this, this flame war between a diplomat and a celebrity. And we know that when we put out videos that involve celebrities and diplomats, more people watch them. You know, it's, that's, that's engaging for, for most people. So I think in, in this particular instance, what they have done, what these diplomats have done, has backfired because it does mean more people are talking about the oppression of Palestinians. And it also means more people are talking about how accusations of anti-Semitism are, are weaponized in incredibly cynical means. The game I do think they're playing, though, because I don't think they're idiots, is that while in this particular instance, you know, in the short term it backfires, in the long term the aim is different, which is to say... They want, as you said, the people to be scared. So Emma Watson, I think, here comes out as the moral victor. I don't think anyone sort of, or the majority of people look at this situation and think Emma Watson in the right, those nasty diplomats are in the wrong. But I think what this is about is that in the background, even though she is clearly the moral victor, are there some problems being done to her career? Are the few people mm. who this upsets able to, you know, put some pressure on her to just make her feel, look, even if I came out better in that situation, like in, in terms of sort of my, my public facing persona, there aren't many reasonable onlookers who think that I'm an anti-Semite from that post. Are there enough people? Is this row awkward enough, annoying enough that I'm not going to do it again? Because I, do, I think they're taking a risk. I think if, if people like Emma Watson keep doing these posts, if celebrities say, no, we're not going to be cowed, then if we're constantly having these stories where you've got a celebrity that says something innocuous and you know admirable, about Palestine, and then you've got an Israeli official who calls him an anti-Semite. If that keeps happening, I think that's really good for the Palestinian cause. What's bad for the Palestinian cause is if they are successful at scaring these celebrities so the celebrities think it's not worth my while. So, I mean, I think we're on the same page. I just say, I, I do think in the short term, this story is a win for the Palestinian struggle. In the long term, it might be more damaging. It might be more effective. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think that... Yeah, I, th I think that the fact that, you know, Emma Watson wasn't making any kind of concrete commentary on anything specific happening. It's literally just the existence of, of a Palestinian flag that has now become something that you can face, not just backlash from sort of random people on Twitter, which, you know, if you just breathe online, you basically get, but backlash from state officials. Like, that's quite an intimidating thing. And I think that that sort of making people feel particularly when assaults happen and when the, the when news comes out of Palestine of assaults, you know, assaults on um, like warfare, etc. Making people feel afraid to say anything is incredibly, is incredibly powerful because as I sort of said before, that kind of solidarity, that global solidarity that the Palestinian movement has managed to build over many years was always always has always been the most difficult thing to control 
And I think creating this amorphous sense of fear where people, where you're not necessarily having to censor people, but you're making people censor themselves, that scares me um, because that's actually a very effective way of, of tampering with, with a movement. It's also interesting because I suppose if, because I'm a political commentator, if I felt like I got into an argument with a diplomat and won, you know, which I think, you know, she, she's won this really, they, they come across as stupid. I'd be quite happy with that because that's my job. That's what I do. If I was an actor and even, even if I won, even if I got the moral high ground, just the fact that I'm now in a political row as opposed to, you know, an artistic discussion, I don't know what, what these people like to have, then that would presumably sort of dissuade you from doing it again. I quite like winning arguments. If you're a celebrity, you probably just prefer to avoid them. Um, higher than the sun with 449. It took one footballer to change government policy. How many celebrities to make BDS go mainstream? Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? I suppose, I suppose Marcus Rashford was able to really mobilize public opinion because there were lots of people in this country who were directly affected by that issue of, of, of free school meals. When it comes to foreign policy, it is harder to build up the same amount of public pressure because it is something that happens somewhere else. That doesn't mean people don't care, but it means that it is harder to put pressure on the government and force a U-turn when it comes to foreign policy, unless the story is that it's been a disastrous failure for, for Britain. To finish, we have got um, a good news story. Good news from Bristol. The four protesters accused of criminal damage for toppling the statue of slave trader Edward Colston have been found not guilty. These were the scenes from Bristol Crown Court after the verdict came in. We are and we feel ecstatic and stunned. I I tried to write something ready for this moment and I'm just so overwhelmed because it never felt like we'd got we'd get here and now we're here and this is we just want to say thank you to so many people because we have never been alone in this journey we've been so supported and we are you know we're such a small part of this really there were so many people that day, so many people like reverberating across the world in response to it. You heard speaking there, Rianne Graham. She was with Sage Willoughby, Milo Ponsford and Jake Scoos, who together make up the Colston Four. What's remarkable in this case is that none of the four contested that they took part in the pulling down of a statue of a slave trader at a Black Lives Matter protest in summer 2020, nor did they contest having a role in dumping the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol Harbour. Instead, they argued the toppling of the statue was justified because it was motivated by sincere anti-racist principles. The four spoke in their own defence in court, each expressing, expressing frustration that previous attempts to persuade the council to remove the statue had failed and contending that the statue was so offensive that it constituted an indecent display or a hate crime. And, as you've seen, the jury agreed toppling that slave trader was not against the law. Dahlia, what do you make of this verdict? Oh, it's absolutely brilliant news, you know, absolute solidarity to those heroes. And I'm so glad that the jury acquitted them because I think if they'd been found guilty, I think it would have been an incredibly demoralizing moment for a movement and a sort of cultural shift that has been taking place that is incredibly exciting. And yes, it's incredibly polarized. And yes, you know, there's a lot of backlash from certain parts of the political spectrum in the media, but that's the nature of changing things. You know, that's the nature of struggle. 
statues do not have an inalienable right to exist. We deserve to have input and we deserve to shape the built environment in which we live. And especially when we look at these, particularly these statues, where for many of the men, largely men, that have been made into statues, it is through immense harm, immense violence, immense exploitation that they were able to garner the kind of financial and political dominance that meant that statues were then built of them. And I think it's really, really important because when statues are taken down, when statues are removed, when they're brought into public interest and when they're brought into public discussion, we're not just talking about the physical being of the statue. We're talking about the history that it represents. And we're talking about how the choices that we make when we remember and narrativize and talk about our history. And that very much shapes the present and it shapes how we go in to the future. And so the ability to contest statues and the ability to use statues to provoke these reckonings and the ability in the case when democratic channels are systematically being blocked for people who want to go through, you know, I did a talk in Bristol. I can't remember what year, but I feel like I did it in like 2017, 2018. And it was on the topic of statues because I'd been active in the Roads Must Fall movement and they were talking about the Colston statue then. And, you know, we were, we were discussing it. People brought up the experience of trying to get the Colston statue taken down through the available political and democratic channels. And I can attest to the number of years that Bristol activists, that Bristol community members have tried to exercise their democratic right and have it had it shut down in their face. And so I think that it's incredibly important that these four heroes were acquitted. And I think that this is a really great moment uh, for not only this ongoing uh, movement that we're having about reckoning and decolonizing our memory of particularly slavery and colonialism uh, and Britain's role in those things, but also in the right to democratically protest and the right to take democratic action, which as we know is that right is being attacked, that right is being worn down by this government. And this is a really important and, you know, heartwarming victory. We should take the victories when we can get them because it's incredibly important. (laughs) It should set a precedent for local authorities whereby if they think they can get away with keeping up statues or monuments or whatever, which are offensive to parts of their community, and then they ignore all the democratic means or sort of, you know, we talked about this in depth, the way the way that they sort of stood in the way of all the attempts that people in that community made to have their voice heard and had it have it removed by the conventional means. If they leave those statues up, deny those democratic rights, then if someone pulls it down, they might well get away with it. You know, so I would hope to now see preemptive action from loads of local authorities across the country who are now worried that if they leave the thing up, someone might come pull it down and then be vindicated in court. So it's very, very exciting times. It's, it's good that those will hopefully be the conversations which are now happening in town halls across the country. Let's wrap up there. So nice to end on a good news story for once. Dahlia, Gabriel, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. It's been lovely to speak to you too, Michael. And thank you all for watching and your super chats and your comments and your support. We will be back on Friday, I suppose, at 7pm with Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night.
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.